Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. So far in our series focused on the initial phases of the war in Afghanistan, it's been one lopsided fight after another. And while there have been American casualties like Mike Spann, who was killed during the Battle of Kali Jangi, it pales in comparison to the losses being sustained by Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. But that would change during Operation Anaconda in March of 2002, when a small group of special operations forces was at risk of being wiped out in a battle that would cost seven American lives. We've talked about this man before, but it's worth doing again. Today, we have the story of Tech Sergeant John Chapman and his fight during the Battle of Takurgar. So far, the American strategy of a small footprint in Afghanistan has been super successful. By early 2002, we are starting to see more conventional troops arrive in the country. But if we just look at what's been accomplished so far, you know, starting with just a few people on the ground, then a few dozen, eventually a few hundred um, once we get more and more special operations in country, they've pushed the Taliban back from areas they've held for years. They've turned the tide of the fight with our partners, the Northern Alliance and other Afghan militias across the country. Al-Qaeda is taking casualties like they've never sustained. And bin Laden and his leadership group are on the run. Of course, it would have been better to kill or capture early in the fight, but we've at least disrupted that network to a degree. He's having to move around. They're having to look over their shoulders everywhere they go. But there are some drawbacks to this type of strategy. Namely, you can't be everywhere at once. We have minimal forces on the ground. As an example, let's look at Tora Bora, the fight we talked about just a few episodes ago. We relied heavily on the use of these Afghan militias that we were paying for loyalty. And our priorities didn't always align. And it's believed that during the Battle of Tora Bora, bin Laden got away. But at the very least, a couple hundred Al-Qaeda fighters also escaped what could have been their last stand. What if we had an American division on the ground? Instead of the Afghan militia, what if we had American soldiers in the blocking positions and sweeping through the valley? It's possible, or at least I'd like to think, that maybe we had a better chance of getting bin Laden at that point. Of course, then after an operation like Tora Bora, when we hammer these fighting positions, destroy trenches, collapse caves in on themselves, it's still there. Tora Bora is still there. It's still an incredibly easy area to defend, all things considered. And without the manpower to keep troops on the ground to monitor the area, you're going to see Al-Qaeda start to move back in. Eventually, the Taliban will start to move back in and occupy these areas that are so hard to root them out of in the first place. But that's the risk you take with a small footprint. This is about the time that we start to see the comparisons to Vietnam really take hold. In both conflicts, you'll see an attempt to get the job done You know, I say on the cheap, but that has a negative connotation. The idea is, what's the minimum force requirement to complete the mission? And in the early phases of this war, it looked like we were right on track. I mean, we want to expend as little money, material, and lives as possible to 
meet our objectives. And the more and more people you put in the country, the higher risk you run. Uh, well, first off, it's going to cost more money. There's going to be more material involved. And you know, the downside, if we had an American division there at Tora Bora, is it certainly would have cost more American lives than it did, which was zero as this battle took as this battle played out. But I don't think in 2001 or even 2002, as we're you know we're seeing reports of the Taliban and Al Qaeda on the run, and American air power is just devastating. I don't know that putting 100 or 200 thousand troops in the country was feasible or would have been acceptable to the American people. So it's a bit of a game figuring out what we can do and how we can accomplish the mission with the assets we have on hand. Now the Part of this strategy are going to be these precision strikes and raids, either airstrikes or soldiers, special operations soldiers on the ground conducting raids all across the country, seeking out Al-Qaeda and Taliban leadership. And that's been successful. We're seeing a lot of success there. But it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole. You know, you hit one, another one pops up. And, you know, you knock the Taliban out of Mazari Sharif and Al-Qaeda pops up then in Tora Bora. And then you you knock them out of Tora Bora and, and Al-Qaeda and Taliban pop up in Kandahar. You make a move on Kandahar, and then they might pop up in an area like the Shahikot Valley in eastern Afghanistan, an area that, again, shares a border with Pakistan, easy infill and exfill from that country, and is an easier area to defend than most. And we will see a series of Al-Qaeda fighters start to congregate there in early 2002. So... While they are scattering across the country, they're not going to be hanging out in areas as best they can that are easy strikes or easy raids by American forces. The Shahikot Valley is going to be a challenge. So in early 2002, plans are underway for what's known as Operation Anaconda. It's an idea to squeeze Al-Qaeda out of this area, kill and capture all of them. We believe there are around a thousand Al-Qaeda fighters in the valley. And for this operation, we're going to make some changes from what we did at Tora Bora. Namely, there's going to be American conventional forces on the ground in these blocking positions. We'll see the use of troops from the Rakasans from the 101st Airborne Division, as well as elements of the 10th Mountain Division in the blocking positions as Afghan militias sweep through the valley. The idea then is these Afghan militias kind of flush Al-Qaeda out, and when they go to exit the valley, they're running into you know the 101st and the 10th Mountain Divisions. Overhead, on the ridge lines lining the valley, will be special operations forces designed to monitor movement and as needed, or maybe as expected, call in airstrikes throughout the battle. It's a good plan. It makes sense, um, and you can see on a map how it would work. It's it's feasible, and I think we're making adjustments. We're learning as we go, adjusting from Tora Bora, maybe filling some of the holes in that battle plan. But an operation like this, like most operations, is heavily dependent on timing. A lot of coordinations involved. For instance, you don't want the militia pushing through the valley until the blocking positions are in place, and. You don't want the blocking positions in place until there is some sort of air power, air cover overhead. And to get to that point, the special operations forces needs to get to their ridge lines under the cover of darkness. So there is an element of surprise, which means they need to set back a couple kilometers, maybe even a couple miles from their intended observation point so they can move there under the cover of darkness. Any little hiccup is going to cost valuable time 
in the execution of this operation. Technical Sergeant John Chapman is an Air Force combat controller serving with a Navy SEAL team, call sign Mako 3-0. As a combat controller, he's going to be responsible for the, for the most part in this mission, directing airstrikes throughout the valley, coordinating with aircraft overhead, kind of the game changer on the battlefield here. They are tasked with setting up an observation point on an area known as Takur Gar. It's overwatching the valley, and it'll provide an incredible vantage point for Chapman and his team to really rain down death on Al-Qaeda whenever they show their faces. But right away, as the operation kicks off, there's helicopter issues. And this happens, I mean, this happens in the United States. It happens in peacetime. It happens all the time. So it forces them to jump to a contingency plan right away. And that's a big deal. Remember, we're talking about how important timing is in this battle. And with this loss in time, in order to get to the mountain peak by daylight, they're going to have to shift their landing zone. So instead of landing a few kilometers away from where they intend to go, they're going to have to move much, much closer so they can still make it there under darkness. Now, this peak that they were moving to, Takurgar, had been under surveillance. The Americans and our allies had been watching it for a period of time. It had been bombed like most areas throughout the Shaikot. But we missed something. And after the aircraft carrying Chapman and team makes a couple false landings, right? They're going to bounce around the valley, making it look like there's people landing in, you know, five, ten different places to confuse the enemy. They begin to touch down at 2.45 in the morning. They veer up to land. And as they do so, come under heavy enemy fire. Small arms, Dishka, like heavy machine gun closer to an American 50 cal and RPGs. The aircraft is struck a couple times as it's making its landing. So as an aircraft lands, it kind of pitches up and really slows to nearly a stop so it can land vertically, right? It is incredibly susceptible to enemy anti-aircraft fire at that point. It's it's an easy target. And this aircraft takes a beating. Multiple RPGs detonate, multiple RPGs strike, And the aircraft veers into a slight depression along the mountaintop where they're somewhat protected from enemy fire, briefly. The decision is made that they can still fly the aircraft. They're going to get up, try to take off, and move offside a little bit to deal with the damage and and figure out what's next. And, of course, in this type of situation, you're not making a real slow, controlled movement. You're trying to get out of there as fast as possible. I mean, there's no secret that Al-Qaeda knows where this helicopter landed, right? So as the bird jolts to get off the ground to get out of there as fast as possible, one of the Navy SEALs, Petty Officer Neil Roberts, falls from the aircraft about 10 feet onto the snow-covered mountain below. The Chinook tried to or considered circling back to get him. I mean, it, it's not like they knew at that instant that he had fallen out, right? The hit, Robert's teammates tried to catch him. They they had a hold of his gear, but it slipped and he fell. And by the time, you know, with how fast the aircraft is moving, by the time word gets back up to the cockpit, hey, a guy fell out, they're not 10 feet away from the landing zone. They're, they're maybe a couple hundred feet or more away, now having to consider going back to the area uh, immediately where they were just about knocked out of the sky. Regardless, they do try but they're not able to control the craft well enough to make any sort of reasonable landing on this, you know, narrow landing zone atop the mountain. So they set down about seven miles away. 
the aircraft is not going to be able to make many more movements that night. So they call in for, you know, additional aircraft reserve aircraft to move this team. I mean, they've got a brother on this hillside that needs to be extracted and the decision is made. We're going back up there, hot LZ or no to get him out. Roberts, when he fell, um, turned on an infrared strobe marking that he was alive, which isn't crazy. He fell 10 feet, right? Um, certainly wouldn't have felt good, but, but he's alive, marks his position with an IR strobe. So American aircraft are now overhead watching to make sure they, that he's even there to identify his location. But he fell right in the midst of these Al-Qaeda positions that we didn't necessarily know were there. So speed is of the essence to go up there and get him. The team, six strong at this point, decides that they're going to board this other aircraft, continue on, and the mission's kind of changed at this point. They're certainly not going to be moving to their observation point with any sort of element of surprise. They're going in to get Roberts. The aircraft touches down, and almost immediately, Chapman and team come under fire. Chapman takes off, assaulting forward towards the first bunker, first enemy position. Now there's video of this, which is pretty incredible on YouTube. You can look up this fight and watch Chapman moving. And he's moving uphill through knee and sometimes waist deep snow. And it's hard. The only way you can really tell in the video is how slow they're moving. I mean, this is, you know, maybe the fight of their lives, in the most danger they've been in in their entire lives, bullets raining down all around in the dark. And you can just see how slow they're going. And it's, it's almost painful to watch knowing how quickly they want to move. And you just can't. I don't know if you've ever walked in knee deep snow, let alone waste. You're not moving quick at all. Yet under fire, Chapman takes off with his team leader, senior chief petty officer, Britt Slabinski, not far behind. Charges into the fire, Chapman charges into the fire and assaults the first bunker and at a range of 10 feet or less, kills two Al-Qaeda fighters clearing that bunker. Now, bunker one is important because it's, it's the area that's closest to the landing zone. It's right on top of it. So if they can move through those, they can start to assault the next and the next positions. Roberts at this point has been drugged back a little further to what's called bunker two a few dozen meters maybe um, behind bunker one. In this first bunker, Chapman is joined by Slabinski and they start to take fire from the second series of trenches and bunkers. This includes PKM machine guns, RPG fire, small arms, grenades. And it's during this firefight that, sh that Chapman is shot twice and presumed dead. The remaining four SEALs move up to this position, consolidate and start and, and continue the fight. But before long, they start taking casualties and it's still dark. It's chaotic. Men are falling. And the decision is made by the team leader, Slabinski, to move down from the summit to a more defensible position. They're not able to take Roberts who they're, they're right around Robert's body at this point, who was, a um, couple different reports, but sounds like he was he was he was killed. Um, in this case, as he would have been wounded and helpless, falling from the aircraft, we could probably just as easily call it an execution. They're not able to bring Roberts or Chapman with them. 
kind of a heat of the moment decision, but the belief by the seals on the mountain at that point is that both are dead. They slide downhill. I mean, this is how steep of an elevation it is. They're, they're not running or walking downhill. They're sliding. And as they get to a more defensible position, they start, they, they make the call for reinforcements and start directing airstrikes. It's worth noting now that Chapman is alive. There are heated arguments over why he was left and how he could have possibly been left by Slabinski and the SEALs. But my two cents, my opinion on the matter is, is simply that no American would ever intentionally leave a brother behind. And in the chaos of this battle where the SEALs are outnumbered, taking heavy fire and taking casualties, Slabinski did what he believed was best to save the lives of as many of his men as possible. And that he truly believed that Chapman was dead. Either way, I'm certain that that decision weighs heavily on Slabinski today. I can't imagine. As they start calling in airstrikes on this ridge, Chapman's in one of the bunkers. And there are multiple strikes. American aircraft and an AC-130 Spectre gunship is laying fire right on top of the Al-Qaeda positions. We'll say well inside danger close for Chapman. I mean, some of them are hitting right outside his bunker. He's taking, he's dealing with the effects of the massive concussion of these blasts. And at 520 in the morning, not only is he alive, but he starts to fight back. Now, of the wounds that he sustained at this point, it's believed that one of them was fatal. You know, after, after the fact, the autopsy could, could look at the different wounds that he sustained. And one of them, they believe likely was causing shock, severe blood loss, maybe in and out of, maybe he was passing in and out of consciousness. And that eventually either one of the, one of these would have killed him, but he continues to fight and he gets on his radio. I know that's a comment of why not Leave. Why not radio your buddies? At this point, there were radio calls that went out and combat controllers on nearby peaks and aircraft overhead heard Chapman calling on the radio. And when they called back, he didn't respond. And it makes us think that there might have been an issue with his radio. The equipment is broken. I mean, this is a nasty, nasty fight he's in. But he is making attempts to call out. Chapman cut off from his men right in the midst of the Al-Qaeda positions is outnumbered at least a couple dozen to one. It doesn't take long as he's firing on the enemy positions for Al-Qaeda to figure this out and think something's up. This is one guy that's shooting at us. We've got the advantage. So you see over a short period of time, two Al-Qaeda fighters charge Chapman's position. The first, he, he shoots and kills before they get right right on top of him. But the second makes it to Chapman's position. And again, you can see this in a video. He's engaged in hand-to-hand combat with his second fighter, already severely wounded. Again, maybe shock, severe blood loss. He kills that fighter in hand-to-hand combat and continues the fight. Now, the call went out previously for reinforcements, and they're on their way. Reinforcements would be a group of about 19 Rangers led by Captain Nate Self, as well as a few Air Force PJs and combat controllers coming in on another Chinook. This could be the last chance 
for the Americans and Takro Guard to survive. They're outnumbered, outpositioned, outgunned on this mountaintop. But mistakenly, the aircraft bringing the QRF, bringing the reinforcements in, was told to land on the LZ, which is hot. There's gunfire all around. It almost brought down one helicopter, miraculously didn't bring down that first helicopter at night. And now it's daylight. If that bird lands on the mountainside right now by bunker one, like Chapman and team did just a few hours prior, it could be a slaughter. I mean, it wouldn't take much for that helicopter to be shot down out of the sky, crashing and killing all aboard. Chapman, still alive, still fighting, knows this. And he hears the helicopter coming in the distance. And as the bird starts to make its final approach, again, remember, it's going to slow down as it begins to land. Chapman, in his last act, left his covered position and began firing in multiple directions, suppressing all enemy positions as best he could while the bird came in. The issue for Al-Qaeda at this point is if they can get to Bunker 1, they can decimate this aircraft. It's going to be a harder shot from further back, less chance of success. But Bunker 1, where Chapman is, is, is laying, what he's, Bunker 1 is on the other side of Chapman. They have to get through him to occupy the fighting position. It would be ideal to stop this American reinforcement bird from even landing. At this point, as was the case now for a couple hours, Chapman could have just hunkered down, treated his wounds and waited. He could have tried to slide back down the mountain. But now, as he sees the risk posed to the incoming aircraft, he opts to fight, to continue to fight and use his last few moments covering the men so that they can land. The aircraft is hit as it begins to land, but it's able to make a crash landing. So it's not knocked out of the sky. And as the Rangers and Air Force personnel exit the aircraft, Chapman is continuing to lay down fire from an exposed position. But after suffering 16 separate bullet and shrapnel wounds, Chapman is eventually shot, fatally shot, and killed. Now, the helicopter is again landing in daylight in a hot LZ and Right away, four Americans are killed. The door gunner in the helicopter, as well as three who exited the aircraft right when they left the ramp. You know, like we'd see on the beaches of Omaha during D-Day, as soon as they exited the craft, shot down. The Rangers would begin their assault up the mountain, would also receive some reinforcements shortly, and after hours and hours of fighting, would clear the peak. By 2000 or 8 p.m. that night, eventually, all individuals, including the bodies of Chapman and Roberts, would be extracted from the mountain. All in, the battle would cost the lives of seven Americans and upwards of 200 Al-Qaeda fighters. For his actions that day, Chapman would be awarded the Medal of Honor. I mean, without him, that lead chopper, that first bird bringing in the Rangers, likely would have been shot down, killing the 20-plus on board. The team leader for the Navy SEALs, Brett Slavitsky, was also awarded the Medal of Honor for helping keep his men alive in that fight and coordinating the reinforcements in the face of overwhelming odds. These two would mark the first Medal of Honor recipients 
in the war in Afghanistan. Now, the war so far to this point has been focused on these large battles, rooting out Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. But if we're going to truly win this war, have any chance of success, we'd have to get closer to the population amidst this insurgency that's starting to take form. And that can get messy. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.